Hello, and welcome to episode 78 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, I got a few announcements for you this week. A uh, big one for us, of course, is Euro Closure. Um, stay tuned for speaker announcements. Those will be made very soon. Tickets, however, are on sale now. Uh, the event is in Barcelona, Spain, and it will be taking place June 25th to 26th. We're talking about 2015, of course. So uh, keep an eye out for the speaker announcements and go and get your tickets. Go to Barcelona. Enjoy some closure. Be fun. I uh, also want to mention LambdaConf, which is taking place May 22nd to 24th. Uh, that's in Boulder, Colorado. You can find out more information about that conference at lanyard.com, which is L-A-N-Y-R-D.com, slash 2015 slash LambdaConf, spelled out L-A-M-B-D-A-C-O-N-F. There's a closure bridge taking place in Helsingborg, Germany. Helsingborg might be my new favorite city name. I like that a lot. That's uh, May 29th and 30th. Um, obviously in Helsingborg, Germany, as I said, you can find out more information about that at the Closure Bridge website, closurebridge.org. I want to mention, too, there's a brand new Closure Meetup that has been launched in Edinburgh in the UK. The next meeting, uh, which I guess maybe is the first meeting, not sure. Anyway, uh, the next meeting, either way, is Thursday, May 14th. Um, you can find that on meetup.com, uh, meetup.com slash Edinburgh hyphen closureians. Um, <laughs> so uh, that looks to be super fun. Um, I'm just imagining all the accents talking about closure. That'd be really great. I'd love that accent. So, uh, all right, that's it for announcements. We will now go on to episode 78 of the Cognicast. Cool, then well, let's go ahead and fire it up. So, here we go. Um, welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the Cognicast. Today is Friday, February 27th in the year 2015, and we are very pleased to welcome to the show today, Mr. Brandon Bloom. How are you today, Brandon? I'm good, how's it going, Craig? Not bad at all, um, although I have to say, I am a little bit bummed. Today, I just, I just learned not that long ago that Leonard Nimoy died. It's a big, I don't know, I mean, like, I know it's, it's, pretty nerdy but like that star trek thing was kind of important to me <laughs> growing up um, yeah I, I know exactly what you're talking about you're like oh that no oh, that that's no oh, well like well, i guess he was old yeah you know? he was in his <laughs> 80s so again that's a good run yeah well you live long and prosper i mean i know it's nerdy to say that but you know it's not a, <laughs> you could do worse for a philosophy right <laughs> at any event i don't want to i don't want to hang out on the bum note because i actually am super excited to talk to you and of course um, we have many interesting things to talk about. Uh, we always start with the question of art, uh, an, an experience of art. We ask our guests to share some yes. some sort of thing that they have somehow encountered or done or whatever in the realm of art. So what, what do you have for us today? Well, so we were talking about, I, I just moved back uh, to Seattle from New York, and we had some really nice weather the last two weeks, uh, uncharacteristically warm and clear here in Seattle this winter. And I've caught myself staring out the window at the mountains in the background quite a few times. Mm -hmm. And I, I forgot what it's like to have mountains in every direction. And so I, I found myself like in a conversation in a restaurant, just 
zoning out and staring out <laughs> at the Puget Sound. Uh, it's absolutely beautiful. And uh, uh, I was one of the things I missed most uh, in my time in New York was was just the mountains. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I like I like your interpretation of the question is that just looking around you and seeing something beautiful. That's very, very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, so listen, um, it's it, you and I uh, have seen each other off and on pretty much at, at conferences, run into each other a couple other places. But, you know, and whatever we do, we always strike up a conversation. I'm always fascinated to hear what you have to say. And we were like, well, why don't we just record it one of these times? So, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, you're always working on interesting stuff, had some some things on your mind that you, you think are pretty cool. And I'm just going to go ahead and just throw it wide open to you and you can maybe um, take it wherever you like. But, you know, one place we could start is you have been doing some thinking on a, on a kind of a side project for a while now. Yeah. So I have been on and off working on a bunch of different interesting sort of low level computer sciencey projects. Partly for fun, partly because I think there, there's maybe a project or a business in the future. I don't really know. But I guess one of the things that we were talking about last time we ran into each other, which I guess was at the Conj or Strange, no, Strange Loop. Strange Loop, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have been tinkering on sort of virtual machine sort of things. So I was really interested in just kind of how my whole stack works, and I kind of you know, started digging into garbage collectors and JITs and all that sort of stuff. And it's just so complex and I just really wanted to understand it. And so I just decided like, I'm going to make sense of this. I'm going to try and dig into all the different parts. And in doing so, I started building prototypes and, you know, doing the textbook algorithms and a few different little things that were in there kind of popped out at me as particularly interesting or fun and in sort of true yak shaving style I kind of couldn't resist but to do my own twists on different things. And so I think the idea we were talking about uh, most specifically was related to uh, the garbage collector and the heap. Was that is what that one of the things you we were chatting about? I forget now. Uh, my memory is, is yeah. a steel sieve. Uh, mine <laughs> like a steel sieve. So you'll have to you know for the per- benefit of people that weren't in the conversation, let's just pretend let's just be generous and pretend that I didn't I don't remember any of that. <laughs> Fair enough. So <laughs> I was like, hey, I just want to know how a garbage collector works, right? So I started doing the traditional mark and sweep and all those sorts of things. And uh, one thing that stood out to me as interesting in the literature for garbage collectors is that cycles are, you know, both a theoretical problem and also a practical problem, right? You got to worry about, like, so the whole idea behind, like, mark and sweep is, like, you go over your graph and you say, okay, I've already visited this thing, So I'm going to record a bit on it and say, you know, I haven't been there. I've already been there. So I've walked this part of the graph and that's what makes sure you actually terminate, right? You don't want to get into an infinite loop. But so cycles are interesting. And then if you look at, if you look at garbage collection in terms of uh, ref counting versus tracing, right? They're basically the same idea. There's a really great bit of research uh, by, I believe his name is David Bacon. It's called like a unified theory of garbage collection. And it was just a really fascinating view that garbage collection by tracing that you expect in a traditional modern runtime walks all the live data and then throws away everything it didn't touch. Whereas reference counting walks all the dead data, things that had the reference count change from one to zero, and then deletes all the dead stuff. And so the time you pay for collection is either proportional to the live or dead data, depending on whether you're walking the roots or the anti-roots. Mm. And that was just a really fascinating thought to me. And so... I just, I just started playing with that more. And what I realized is that 
cycles are an even bigger problem when you're talking about uh, reference counting because reference counting, like if you have a loop of like A points to B and B points to A, the reference count for A is one and the reference count for B is one. And so you can't collect that. Mm-hmm. And so, so, uh, so I just was like exploring these ideas and I, I, I set like a challenge for myself. I wanted to build something that was, you know, a garbage collector and a language runtime sort of heap for a, a different category of problem, not the traditional like small talk style object oriented view that you see in the JVM or whatever, but for something more closure like where it's like, okay, you have strict and immutable data so that you can't really have any cycles at all. And the data is immutable, or at least it's immutable after the transients and other construction happens. And so I wanted to say, I wanted to say like, okay, if you actually have those constraints, can you do an order of magnitude better than traditional garbage collectors in terms of either simplicity or performance, or do you get some magic special features? So I I started building that. And I have this prototype really of basically something that can store Eden, right? Like basically the closure structures. Mm -hmm. It's really weird because it's basically a database but it's it's not really a database in the traditional sense of you do queries on it. It's sort of like if you had something that can store JSON or Eden or whatever, you basically just memory map the entire virtual machine's heap to a file, and then you maintain a single root pointer into it, and just like you would do with a single atom into a into a big data structure enclosure. And all you got to do is you know f sync your your heap, and then atomically write that root pointer into a file, and you've got a, a effectively a a totally durable runtime heap, which is an idea that died a long time ago when you had application persistence. And they did very traditional O of N, let's just copy all of memory to disk. And that's okay when you have small heaps, but it's it's not really it doesn't really work when you have really large heaps. You want to pay O of changes cost, not O of size of heap cost to be durable. Mm. And so, and so I kind of went down that road doing a prototype of it. I have a working prototype. I, I still haven't open sourced it just because it's got many man years of engineering effort for it to be reliable and performant and a bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. But it was, just, it was just sort of this fun adventure I went on for a few months where I was like, okay, I'm going to go implement a traditional garbage collector. And I wound up inventing my own algorithms and data structures and had to do all sorts of concurrency and all sorts of wacky, crazy stuff. Because I do or did part-time consulting at the time, I had a ton of extra time to tinker on this, and it was just just a really fun experience. And sort of the the goal was to build something, you know, the analogy I was using to give to people was this thing is to, like, Redis that Datomic is to Postgres, right? The idea was instead of having a relational model of with durability, you have sort of a structural model of durability where you have different data structures and maps and sets and vectors and get durability out of that. And I thought that'd be really useful for some people, but... I don't have the time and energy to turn it into something production caliber. And so, and so I, I kind of languished uh, in the last few months. I haven't gotten to work on it in a while. But that was, uh, that was sort of the thing we were talking about right. back at Strange Loop. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, so let me make sure I understand this idea, though, because <laughs> there's a bunch of things swimming around in there. If I can maybe oversimplify it, the idea sure. is essentially what I would normally use something like object serialization for. In other words, I have a closure value and I want it to go onto disk so that I can yeah. survive across processes. Is that an accurate summary? Exactly. So actually the way it works is right now it's on the JVM, this prototype. 
And basically the way it works is that you have a totally custom heap, right? That's just, I manage it by operating on the bytes directly with like Java NIO. I have wrapper objects that wrap a pointer into that custom heap. And those wrapper objects implement all the same closure protocols or interfaces more specifically, right? And so you have a normal persistent hash map. I also have a durable hash map. Mm. And the way it works is that when you add something to it, it just serializes everything that gets added to it. So you don't actually have to do anything special other than put it into a durable atom. So the way it works is you make a durable atom. The durable atom has a name and a path on disk, right? You say this durable atom is, or there's, you know, you open, you open the database. You say the database is in this folder. It's just two files. It's a big, big file of pages of memory. And then a, a file that has a single integer in it. That's the root to the tree. And the root to the tree is just a map of named atoms. So if you have an atom, you call it like users, right? You may have to make a named atom called users. And now that goes into this, this durable map. And then when you put things into that atom, they get serialized as they get added. But if something's already serialized, then nothing has to happen. It's, it's already done. And so all you need to do to serialize this now is you walk the internal structure of the tree. Every page of memory it touches that hasn't been synced to disk yet, you sync. And so it's cheap. If you, if you add, it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a really old idea. It's, just persistent. it's like the same persistent data structure idea, but it's done at the, at the memory page level. And so if you, if you add an item to the end of a vector, you should only pay a logarithmic cost to update it. But actually, it's even cheaper than that because half the time, the, the interior nodes are all stored on a particular page of memory together, right? The most recent page of memory. Mm-hmm. And so you're only going to save like, you know, one, you know, four kilobytes of data or whatever to make that durable. And so, and so you can use it just like a normal atom. The only difference is you have to give the atom a durable name. And then things you put in there get copied. There are constructors for already durable things. You can say, like, I want to construct a durable vector up front. Um, the reason you do that is the vector will be slower up front, but then you'll, you're, you're paying, like, you, instead of paying a cost, like, if you have a million-item vector and you put it into the durable atom, you have to copy a million items. But if you make an empty durable vector and then add a million items to it, then the writing happens incrementally. So you don't need to know about that. Like you don't need to make a durable vector up front because all I care about is the small subset of closure data. So I can automatically convert them as things get added. And then if you try to add something like a normal Java object to the durable atom, you just get an exception, right? It's like, oh, this thing's not, doesn't implement I durable or whatever it is, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so I want to come back to something you said. Uh, just to be clear, I'm pretty sure I understand, but at, at one point you, were, you said that you only have to write the pages that have changed. I assume that's handled by your library. When you say you, you mean the library handles yeah, it. Yeah, actually, right now it's handled by the operating system. I don't even bother. Okay. <laughs> it's the same idea as, I don't know if, if MongoDB still works this way, because Mongo's model was, at some point, was just like, I used to joke it's just an ORM for nmap, right? The memory map to file. <laughs> and so and so somebody would write to it and then uh, you mutate things in memory and then you just call fsync on the operating system, keeps a track of all the dirty pages, and it'll only write to disk the dirty pages. That doesn't work for Mongo because they're mutating things in place. And so if you get some sort of corruption and your file system like only guarantees that whole pages are written, but some object, you know, some transaction touches things in multiple pages, mm-hmm. you may get an inconsistent database. Mm-hmm. And so because I'm using immutable data, uh, I don't have that problem. Right. 
I actually would have that problem if I were to do a moving collector. So like the typical garbage collector in say like the JVM is a, is a compacting collector where when the garbage collector runs, it pauses your process and moves everything. But because I have a distributed system in the sense that the operating system and my program are two different concurrent processes, I just treat even the location of objects as immutable, which is a weird thing because it means you have to worry about fragmentation and other stuff like that. But uh, it saves the problem of having to deal with corruption if you get an incremental save. So because I never override or change live data at all, there's absolutely no risk of a partially saved file causing corruption. And so I just have to make sure that like up to a certain point in time, the entire operation has been synced to disk, the whole file, which the operating system handles for me. And then I just write the root pointer. And so it's a non-moving collector in that sense. Even the location of objects is immutable, uh, which, which totally eliminates entire categories of synchronization and locking. And so, and so that's a really alien design decision for traditional functional language, it means allocation is more expensive because you have to find free space instead of bumping a pointer. Right. But it means that uh, that I don't need to lock objects uh, at all, right, and stuff like that when when the collector is running. So you can get better parallelism. So it's a trade off. One that I think is a good trade off if you need durability. Um, of course, to make this work with real closure, uh, you now have to deal with the JVM's garbage collector as well. So you have weak references into my custom heap and everything, and you pay substantial overhead for that. But uh, my my benchmarking, which is really naive, shows like it's 20x slower than a traditional JVM object, which is roughly on par with Python. Mm-hmm. So so I think I think it's a good trade-off for durability. Yeah, and you're you're in process, so you're not paying any any network cost, for instance, to do your serialization yeah. out to some I mean, you know, that's that's not a straight up trade-off, right? Because there's lots of good reasons to want to do that sort of thing. But Interesting, interesting, interesting. So, I, and I assume, so you talked about the fact that you have to deal with fragmentation, but I assume there's nothing stopping you from saying, look, disk is cheap. I'm going to have two modes of allocation. One is to recover space from within the within the heap, and another one is to simply expand it and, and add on the end, and maybe later, maybe like when you restart the process once a day or whatever it is, to do compaction at that point or compaction yeah, offline so, or something. So, so compaction is the only total solution to fragmentation. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's a really interesting observation that is that if you have objects of uniform size, let's say all your objects are 32 bytes or 64 bytes or a kilobyte or whatever, right? Like, so you look at memory pages, right? They're, they're four kilobytes traditionally on, on Linux and OS X or whatever. They're all the same size. And so fragmentation is impossible because you never have a problem where you want to allocate something and you're going to like have leftover wasted space. So if you look at that observation, there's been some, I got on recent, the last like 10 years or so, changes to the way allocation happens in C or in the kernel space. Because there you you can't, because your C program is just going to deal with pointers directly, you can't move things. Mm-hmm. And so they have this problem of fragmentation. And what, what's been happening in sort of general purpose allocators now is they do what's known as slab allocation, mm-hmm. where they will make a separate heap for objects of a particular size. For each for each size, so you'll do you'll do rounding. You'll say, okay, we have objects of, let's say, thirty two bytes, uh, you know, sixty four bytes, like either powers of two or multiples of the of like a pointer size, or or you know, multiples of the page size. Usually, there's like a couple of different buckets, and then you'll make one heap for each of those. Uh, 
and then you'll allocate objects of the, sa of the same size, like rounded up, so that they fit. And you'll have a little bit of wasted space as things go into a bigger page size. But for most objects that are small, especially in like a functional language where it's like, you know, in Clojure, most objects are like, oh, I have, a, uh, I have a box integer, right? It's like 32 bits plus 32 bits of overhead. It's a 64-byte object. Or like I have a vector. It has internal nodes of 32 bytes plus a length. So it's like, okay, this thing fits uh, 32 pointers or whatever it is, right? So, so you have most things have a pretty random, uh, you know, fixed size. And so in reality, this isn't a big problem because most of your objects are small and some multiple of a, of a normal size. And, and disk is cheap. And so... And so the only problem now is, is how do you find the available space mm -hmm. inside those structures? How do you find which objects aren't used? And so, so what a, like a compacting collector will do is they'll have what's known as a bitmap, which basically says these ranges of memory are in use. And so from that bitmap that says like starting, like this bit represents, you know, blocks of memory. And this, like these bits represent that block of memory. And you can, you can look at the space between bits and calculate how much you need to squish objects together, right? Because it tells you like this range of memories in use and this range of memories in use and this range of memories in use. And then given those ranges, you can squish them. And uh, that's how they keep track of which ranges of memory are free or available. But in uh, like our, a slab allocator, like in the kernel, they do the same thing where they say, you know, one bit represents this block of memory. And if the heap sizes, these objects are eight pointers large, then one bit of memory says these eight pointers are free or these, or these eight words are free or these eight words aren't free. And so you walk that data structure to find slots, like bits, that are free. And that's a linear search across the bits, but you can make summary data structures. So basically you have one bit that represents whether or not there is any free bits in the next level of the tree. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I think I follow that. Yeah, <laughs> this is good stuff. I'm, I mean, obviously you're wrestling with some relatively heavy concepts here. I mean, you're, you know, it's just in some sense, as you say, building a database, in some sense, building a garbage collector, both of which are kind of known hard problems. But yeah. I, I think I'm with you. Yeah. So I, I, I've gotten, I've realized I've been talking for twenty something minutes. No, no, and I've that's gotten why we have you on. <laughs> really deep into like something crazy. Like I, I. I just get excited about all the little details because I got to like do some of my like own algorithms and stuff, which is kind of an unusual thing. A lot of people do a lot of, you know, I guess like I like for business, I do a lot of boring web apps and you work on database things and business requirements. And so it's exciting to get to work on like a really nitty gritty bits and bytes algorithm. So, yeah. So like basically when you look at, you know, how the internal way you represent closure data structures, right? It's like if you look at the way the vectors are built, it has these internal structures that are parts of the try. And so you have the, the tree shape represents indexes into the vector. Or they represent hash values into a map. And so it's the same idea where you create a tree shape and then you only have to pay logarithmic costs to find blank spots, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so a, a slab allocator will store a tree of bits and then you can search in that tree of bits to find empty spots. So you get logarithmic costs to find an empty spot. And so really the, the tree that represents that represents the free space map is virtually the exact same idea as the trees that represent persistent data structures. It's all, it's all the same idea. But what I do that's a little different than a traditional slab allocator, which maintains a free or dirty bit, uh, I actually maintain a ref count. And mm -hmm. so because I don't have cyclic structures, I don't have to worry about that, that A points to B, B points to A, both have a reference count of one and never gets freed. 
But so what I do is at the bottom of the structure, I store four bits per object, which is a ref count up to, you know, 15 or whatever. And if it goes over that, I store a hash map of like overflow because most objects have a small reference count. And so then the next level up in the tree, I only store one bit saying, are there anything in this branch of the tree that I have a ref count of zero? And so the same data structure that stores the ref counts is the data structure that stores the free space map. And then you have one of these ref count maps per object size chunk. And then you have a big thing on top that stores all the pages and where they, and like, and, and so it's basically just a tree of tree of trees and they're all immutable, but they're actually, they're actually transient. So you mutate them. And then when you want to save the disc, you do the exact same thing closure does, mm -hmm. which is you just stop mutating it. And so that's how you get perf out of this, right? Like you, you treat it as a mutable structure and then the runtime system says, ah, the garbage collector wants to sync these objects. And so the only synchronization that needs to happen is it needs to simultaneously tell every thread, stop mutating the ref count maps you have. Mm -hmm. And so now it's the same as just calling transient and then calling persistent on, a, on it again. And so what I've done is I've basically stolen every good idea Rich had and every good idea like Phil Bagwell and all those folks had and just said, can we apply these to the internal data structures of a garbage collection heap? And I found out that it's actually really similar to like what the Linux and BSD kernels do um, and like JE malloc, uh, which is, you know, popular in C++ web scale, sort of, you know, Google and Facebook run them. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I just like looked at disparate areas of research, right? The, like the operating system space, the functional programming space, the JVM space, and then the work that Rich has done. And I try to combine them all together. And the result is I have this prototype of this thing that's pretty quick, loaded with bugs, tons of work to be done. I think one of these days I'll probably just open source it and maybe somebody like who's better at tuning and, and has, has more, more energy for the slog of making this production caliber can take this work and, and like help me ship it someday. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be yeah. cool. And people are certainly will, of course, include your. You can shout out your Twitter handle right now if you want, or however you like. Oh uh, yeah, to, uh, I'm just at Brandon Bloom. Okay, people are. Yeah, I would encourage people to contact you. This sounds like a really exciting uh, project. Although I guess I have to say, I'm what I'm trying to figure out right now. I, I it seems to me that there must be some obvious practical uh, example of how or where you would use this, but I'm I'm, I'm blanking on what. The, do you have a like a application yeah, in I mind? Mean, I mean, so anywhere you would. Like anywhere you just wish you could just put stuff in an atom, right? So I guess I guess the thinking is if you look at like databases traditionally, there's so I gave a I gave a talk at I think it was Closure West called Dendrology, and I was talking about uh, trees and how there's really kind of this question of which way the pointers go. If you have pointers that go from parents to children, then you have like a structural tree. If you've got pointers that go from children to parents, like for example, you've got a order ID that points to a customer record, right? Mm -hmm. When you when you have your pointers going from children to parents, you you can create graphs and you have the relational model. When you have pointers that go from parents to children, you have a structural model. And so traditionally, programming languages work with the structural model, or especially when you have immutable data, you have a structural model. If you look at like Datomic, it has a relational model, um, and and. Uh, the relational model is nice because you can you can do graphs and cycles and you can it's it's a little easier to query and, and whatever. But the structural model is nice because 
you know, you could actually encode a particular data structure for performance reasons, or you get a concrete representation, right, where you have some canonical representation makes some algorithm easier or whatever. And so different sorts of data kind of lend themselves better to the relational or the structural approach. And so, for example, if you wanted to keep track of the most recent data or you wanted to sort a particular index, like anything you'd use Redis for, where you're like, I want to keep this hash map or this sorted set or this vector, or like you're doing a chat room and you want to show the last 200 messages immediately when somebody comes in. That sort of thing, like a particular data structure is always going to outperform, you know, a very general purpose index, but it's also going to be more natural to program against. And so these are really complementary approaches. You want, you want the relational model for your system of record, and you want the structural model for sort of your, your nitty-gritty nuts and bolts algorithms. Mm. And so depending on your, your application, it may be really pleasant to code against an atom with a, with a map in it, right? Mm -hmm. versus, versus, a, versus something like a, a SQL database or Datomic or something like that. Hmm. That is interesting. I, 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 like, I really like your characterization of you know, data of record versus your algorithmic stuff. I think I, I always love heuristics like that. I know they aren't hard and fast truths, but they are the sort of things where they, they tickle my brain when I see a problem and, I, and it helps me understand what tool might be more appropriate for what part of the job. That, that, that was super enlightening to me. The, the idea that, that if you, if you want to, if you want to like, like for example, in Datomic, you talk about the, like, you know, transactions are first class entities and every object has an ID. And that turns out to be really useful for business use cases, right? Like mm -hmm. for, for auditing, for, for communication about stuff like, oh, what's, what's going wrong? Oh, it's a problem with user ID 27. Having an, a, a synthetic identifier is really useful for a lot of reasons when you're talking about things over time. When you're talking about point in time, right, having the thing is even better than having the identity. <laughs> hmm. So, Could you elaborate? I mean, I'm, I, uh, I'm not sure I fully understand what you're saying. So like when you have a data structure and closure, it's, it's a snapshot. It's a point, it's a point in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I gotcha. And the object's value is its identity, right? I, it's, I gotcha. Yeah, so that, that value represents exactly that value, and it never changes. Right. But if, if you have time, then you need to add a name. Yes. And so rather than have to, like, come up with a – every different sort of domain can come up with a different naming scheme, right? You can say, you know, humans are identified – or American citizens are identified by social security numbers. Users are identified by usernames. Uh, orders are identified by an auto-incremented ID or a date time or a hash of the – shopping cart contents or something, mm. right? Files are identified by a SHA-1, right? You can, you can come up with a ton of different names, but the lack of uniformity means that you have to come up with custom solutions for every name mm -hmm. for like how to deal with logging and auditing and versioning and all that sort of stuff. So when you, when you have a system where you have cross-cutting concerns like auditing, it's really useful to have uniform representations of identities, like an ID number. Right. Yeah. And then, uh, but, but that same uniformity is a problem in the sense that now, you know, you have to go through that indirection, that ID number in terms like, and you're losing performance because you got to look up by an ID number all the time. And so you're relying on the database engine to, you know, internally use pointers and indexes and, and like eliminate that indirection to make it fast. 
And you can always opt in to a special identity for your own purpose. Like you can add a social security number column to your people table or whatever. Mm-hmm. By contrast, if if you don't care about uh, the progression of time, you only care about like the current view, or you only care about some particular representation, then those identifiers are both a performance cost, but also a cognitive overhead, right? right? I don't want to think about uh, message IDs when I'm just listing the top one, like the most recent 100 messages in chat room one, two, three, four, five, mm-hmm. right? So I may look up the chat room by ID, but after that, I just get, you know, a pile of text that's the most recent messages and save the whole complexity of, you know, grabbing all the ID, all the IDs for all the messages that are in this chat room and then sorting by time and then filtering. And there's, there's sort of natural trade-offs between the different things. So like, for example, when you have parents pointing to children, there's natural order, right? Like if you have a vector of messages, they're ordered. You don't need to worry about sorting them. If you have a set of messages that have a chat room ID on them, then you also have to have a timestamp to sort them by. Deciding whether or not you need parents pointing to children versus children pointing to parents is a is a series of trade-offs about, you know, sorted versus unsorted or ordered versus unordered. Um, whether or not I need cyclic data versus acyclic data. Whether I have a particular representation versus I want to be representation agnostic, you know, or or I want a more general representation or a more concrete representation for this particular use case, and so I think that it's a really complementary sort of problem to have. This is what I said. Like, yeah, it's like it's like this thing I was building is to Redis or to Berkeley DB or to something where you have like level DB where you have custom indexes or to just an atom that you PRN to a file. It matches that just as Datomic matches Postgres or or MySQL or something more traditionally relational, and they're complementary, right? Like uh, you you want these two things to work together for different different use cases. Yeah, certainly. I mean, if nothing else, the operational characteristics are radically different. I mean, you didn't build a distributed database. <laughs> yeah. So so the the database I built is actually an embedded one. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. It it only runs in a single process. But what's, what's cool is um, you could imagine hypothetically a distributed version of it. Um, instead of having a single pointer into it, you have a set of pointers into it, one per node. And then you have some agreement over the most recent set of roots into it. And you could, you could have a network map file system or something or a shared address space. And now I could take the same idea and send a pointer across the network. And because they share an address space you know, some more advanced version of this prototype could, in O of delta time, uh, send a terabyte of a map across the network. And, th- and this is sort of what happens with Datomic, where you use the Entity API and it lazily streams um, the entire data set into your process locally. There's no reason you couldn't do that with the, with the structural data as well. So, like, how cool would it be if you and I were, you know, working on something and like you connect to my REPL and I send you a vector and you just stream the parts of the vector in that you need as you're looking at them, right? Like that could work. And so my hope was to then use this VM as the basis for, or use this this heap as the basis for a full language VM. And sort of my dream was you'd be debugging and be like, ah, shit, Brandon, something went wrong and click a button and 
instantaneously send me the entire running state of your VM, like as a link or something, and I just map your address space and stream it in as I need it, and just have like virtual memory across the network. And because everything's immutable and acyclic and all these other problems that go away, I'd have a distributed garbage collector um, for durable memory all the way down to the expression level of my heap. I just thought like that's that's a futuristic dream of the 70s that never happened. Right. Well, and I mean, we, ha- we, ha- we have the technology to do it now. So I was like, all right, let me take a crack at it. There was a little I mean, this is the old you sometimes see it on the T-shirt, the save, lisp and die. Yeah. The old command and I don't know, maybe it's still around. At least one of the common Lisp implementations you would say save Lisp and die and it would you were mentioning this earlier, it would just it would just push all of the the entire heap to an and other state to um a file and then you could recover it later. I don't know if you could do it on a different machine like you were talking about, but similar idea or the or the small talk idea or you know, there's been any any number of uh, another kind of variations on that theme. It certainly would be Super cool. I mean, it beats the heck out of tmuxing into a common machine for, for some scenarios. Yeah. So they had an advantage back in the small talk days, which was that memory was very small. You could say, oh, it's four megabytes? Yeah, okay, it takes three minutes to save, right? Yeah, of course, network speed was different too. But I think I've read somewhere yeah. that network speed has not been growing at the same rate that this, the typical you know, memory data sizes has been. So we're actually worse off than we were. Yeah, but, but but networks are so fast compared to, like, hard drives. <laughs> well, right. What was the thing I saw? I, I, I will have to find it and put the link in the show notes. But it was uh, if, you put, if you put things on a human time scale where one CPU clock cycle is one second, I mean, yeah. obviously it's many, it's billions of times faster than that, then it was like a cache miss, miss costs you a minute, an L1 cache <laughs> miss. An L2 cache miss costs you, and I'm making the numbers up, but it was like eight hours an L3 cache miss cost you like a day. Going to main memory took like a week. And going to disk was a two-year delay, something like that. Yeah. And then it's like, and then it's like, oh, and if you go to disk, but like it's not in the disk cache, then all of a sudden it's like the time of the universe or something crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, all those things are mind-blowing. Uh, humans are generally really bad at understanding exponential anything, right? Right, right. So this is very cool. I, I have a so this is looping back because I, I think I follow most of what you said, but I want to loop back because there's something that tickled the back of my brain as you're explaining more. The this durable atom concept that's is that syncing to disk under control of the other of the user. In other words, every time I swap into it, or is that so? So yeah, so that uh, my prototype right now f syncs every time you swap into it. Okay, um, which obviously is slow. But it's okay if I mean I mean it, it, it's you know it's a kernel call and everything and then you have to worry about the disk and so that's something that could be configurable. I just haven't really thought through what configuration you'd want. Sure. So if you look at like Postgres, you can say, oh, I want to sync every uh, every time a transaction happens or every one second or whatever. Right? That's how often f sync runs. Mm-hmm. Redis has a similar thing where it's like sync every one second and use a log and don't use a log. So I don't really know. I have I have two ideas on either end of the spectrum for what you'd want. One is sync every time you swap into the atom. Mm-hmm. That's what I do now. And the other would just be like a blocking sync operation. Just like let the user deal with it. So swap it into the atom that happens in memory and then you just block on the atom. Just like you do DREF, you'd basically say like DREF with sync. Mm-hmm. You'd say like wait until this thing's on disk before returning. And then that would that would give you sort of what you want 
especially if you have to deal with like another thread or another process on the same box, or especially in a distributed use case. So like in, in Datomic, there's that sync API where you can get the transaction ID number. Mm-hmm. You can say like, if I send uh, something to the database and then I want to talk to another peer talking to the database, I can say block until I get to database version 912. Right. And uh, so you could imagine the same thing where you say block until this is synced on disk and return an ID number, which is just an auto-incremented number. Now, if I have a distributed system or whatever, I could I can just block or wait or get a callback when that sync has happened. And there's there's probably some sort of intermediate mode, which is um, you know sync to disk every three seconds or or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, my thought was that you could you could do that when you either create the database or when you create the durable atom. Uh, I haven't really thought about what people would need, but luckily it's actually a really easy sort of thing to experiment with because internally that block until sync happens is the fundamental primitive I have, right? Mm. Because I'm just relying on the operating system to do the same. And so I block until the F-sync finishes. uh, And then at that point, you're hoping the file system and the operating system is not going to lose any data, which is now an arguable sort of situation unless you're using like ZFS or some modern file system. But that aside, after that, all I do is write the root pointer into a temp directory and then atomically swap that into place. And so after those operations are finished, uh, you're confident your data is synced and that's all blocking. And so that's the primitive is, is do those operations and block and now you know you're durable. And so you can do any sort of dance you want beyond that in terms of what gets synced when. So, so you have some flexibility there. Uh, right now my prototype F-syncs every change, which is understandably slow. Yeah, I also think it's not a it's not an unreasonable default. I mean, if you're prototyping, then you know that kind of lets you make sure that the thing is actually behaving in the most easily understood manner. Yeah, it's all it's also the right thing for users, right? A lot of databases want to win bench, want to win benchmarks, right? And so they like you look at like 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 Mongo was famous for this in its early days, where it's like, oh, it's super fast, but it turns out that it totally loses all your data because it it's reporting success before anything hit disk and. And so if you cheat, you can be fast. Uh, I don't want to cheat. <laughs> I want actually something that's useful, right? Yep, uh, yep. Yeah, I mean, if it says success, then it ought to mean success. Yeah, exactly. It just depends um, on what the semantics are. I mean, you could, because you, in this case, you're not, strictly speaking, a database, so you don't have to provide the guarantee of, of a durable write all the way through if that's not the semantics of what the API is. Yeah, you don't actually need durability. I mean, so if you're using it like a database, which you can, then you want durability as much as possible. But if you're using it like a cache, like a lot of people use Redis right. as, an, as a like fast data structure that can be rebuilt from an authoritative store. If you're using it like that, you can turn off durability completely. And then the only advantage of durability is that you don't need to rebuild your cache as much if you crash, right? Yep, yep, yep. That's exactly how we use memcached in the Datomic scenario. Yeah, exactly. So if you lose all of cache, that sucks because you have to wait a while. But if you lose half a cache or part of cache, it's like, oh, things are slightly slower but still still effectively the same asymptotic cost and user experience and – and so in that case, you would set durability to like the lowest requirements. You'd set it to like a minute, right? And then it's, and then, and then you're fine, but that's up to you. And so I think the right default is the safest default. And mm-hmm. then you opt into performance as you understand the, the, the challenges you're facing for your yeah. particular use case. Yeah, that seems perfectly reasonable to me. <laughs> having, having spent exactly, what are we at, 45 minutes now understanding this particular problem. So, um, meaning I'm pretty ignorant, but it seems reasonable to me on uh, first blush. 
Yeah, I uh, totally did not expect to get into all the nitty gritty details of that, but it was fun. I oh, I love it. No, it's it's great. <laughs> no, it's it was super interesting to me, and uh, and I, I think to our listeners it will be as well. Cool. Well, I mean, I, so with, what I, I want to say for the listeners too is I actually suck at data structures and algorithms, at least. Per- Previously to this. <laughs> so one of the reasons I, I started doing this stuff was because I wanted to get better at it. And so if, if this sort of stuff is scary and intimidating, don't be afraid and just like dig into it and play with it. And, and I started like by implementing the traditional algorithms from textbooks and things. I am historically very bad at, at sort of like interview algorithm puzzles. And so one of the reasons I set out to build this thing in the first place was to get better at it. And it was like, this is months of, of exploring and tinkering and experimenting and talking to other folks. Um, and so, and so like, don't be afraid of it. That's good advice. And uh, I don't know, we're not quite to the advice portion of the show. <laughs> this, I don't think we are, but maybe we'll, maybe it'll be a bonus, a little bonus bit of advice. That's cool. Bonus advice. So, so you mentioned um, that you have had a lot of free time to work on this, but you don't even work. I don't, I don't know if you can talk about it. It's certainly understandable if you can't. Sounds like you're starting a new gig. Uh, yeah, I'm starting quickly. a new full-time position on Monday. I, I'm not going to say anything because I don't know what is or isn't confidential yet. Gotcha. But I'll, I'll make a personal announcement in the next week or three, and uh, I'll, I'll start talking more about it when I know what I can or can't say. Cool. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on uh, on the, the Twitterverse or whatever, you know, <laughs> internet stuff. But you did mention that you've moved back to Seattle. and I, I did. I, I take it you lived there before. You said move back. Yeah, I was here about six years. I was out here when I worked for Microsoft, and my startup was out here. Uh, I love it out here. Uh, I've always wanted to live in New York City, so um, I did that for a while, really enjoyed it, uh, and then kind of did some soul-searching and said, where am I going to be long-term? Decided Seattle uh, with my with my girlfriend. We, we both landed there in, in our thinking. And so here we are, uh, and I'm excited to be back. Awesome. I, I have been to Seattle many a time. I used to work at Microsoft myself for a little while. I mentioned that before. And, oh, that's uh, right, yeah. Yeah, and also my wife's family used to have a home in Seattle. They live in Taiwan, but they maintained a home in, in Seattle. Well, Everett, so Seattle area. Yeah. Um, and so we used to go out there. And the funny thing is they had moved up from um, L.A., which, you know, that's up to them. They had good reasons for doing that, but... But the time when we meet up with them is Chinese New Year, which is typically January, February. Oh, yeah. And, and while Seattle is certainly nicer than Virginia, where I live in January or February, <laughs> it's still normally, you're saying it's been great lately, but normally not awesome, especially compared to L.A. And so I was like, oh, man, why couldn't have they stayed in L.A.? But, I, I, think, I think the secret is like the way all these tech folks wind up here is they do internships at like Microsoft and Amazon. Yes. And they come in the summer. In July. Summer, yep. Oh, my God. The summer in Seattle is incredible. It it's is like amazing. Yeah. 75, breezy, clear, yep. beautiful, no humidity. Yeah. And then it's like winter comes and it's just like make sure you got your vitamin D pills ready. Yeah. Uh, but at least it's not snowing and cold and miserable and – I, I actually much prefer Seattle's winters over like New York's, so you know I'm right there with you. Yeah, cool. Well, we're down to talking about the weather. I don't want to spend too much time <laughs> on that, but, but uh, I and I do want to make sure that we leave enough time to bring up anything else that uh, you think we should talk about today. Is there? Do you have anything else on your mind or anything you're working on? Or I mean, well, you you know me, I could ramble about anything <laughs> at any level of detail forever. We have that in uh, common. <laughs> Excellent. I guess, oh man, that's a whole other conversation. I guess, I guess we'll have to do that another time. Yeah, you're. I, I was just gonna say, um, we, will, we, we are. You are more than welcome to come back and talk to us some other time. But uh, that well, doesn't. Just, it doesn't mean just, you have to cut off now. Oh no, no, just, just, uh, just a teaser. So, so as I said, I wanted to explore all of the sort of VM space when I started with this. I wound up going pretty deep into the heap, 
uh, but I'm also really interested in the evaluation side of it, right? So the JIT, the compiler, the interpreter, et cetera. There's some really cool work going on there that that's happening at a language and compiler and runtime level and about basically doing, you know, a la carte compilation and jitting and making that more of a first-class construct and dramatically simplifying what goes into building a modern JIT. And so that's sort of where I'm, I'm tinkering my research now. Sadly, I'm going to have a lot less time having accepted a full-time position. But uh, sometime again soon, I'm going to be prototyping and experimenting uh, in the in the compiler runtime language JIT space. I, I want I want to apply the same sort of fun insights in, from Clojure and other modern languages and see if we can could do something really cool in terms of more powerful, more featureful, faster, simpler, easier to understand, easier to implement language runtime JITs and stuff as well. Yeah. Well, I, I will, I will, uh, it's not easy, but I will prevent myself from asking you questions about that because <laughs> I'm sure we would be off again for another hour. Yeah, um, that, that one's at least another hour. Yeah. It's, and, it's a harder problem for sure. I'm, I'm tempted to introduce you to this guy I know. He invented his own language and then he wrote a database using it. <laughs> I think you'd really like him. Yeah, so I'm I'm super inspired by Rich's work. You know, I didn't I didn't set out to do these sorts of things, but it's funny because the the deeper you go into this this rabbit hole, the more you become a believer in okay, we have to telescope all the problems and like like you you have to write your own language to to solve categorical fundamental problems, which is just a nightmare because you get into like problems you didn't want to deal with. You're like, oh, now I got to deal with parsers and compilers, and like all I wanted to do was write a database, and like. <laughs> Yeah, maybe one of these days soon the robots will start writing all that for us. Well, I, I think we're at a point now where, I mean, so, so the challenge is, yeah, if, if strong AI was doing programming for us, they would the programs would look a lot different, right? They'd look mm -hmm. more like biology where it's, this doesn't make any sense, but it works, mm -hmm. right? You're just like, yeah, throw a billion neurons at it and maybe something will happen. Whereas as when you bring in engineering and humans into it, now the challenge is like how to make a finite representation that can fit in a, in a one person or a small team's collective conscious right. and like actually be able to do something useful. And so like the challenge is no longer, can we make something work? The challenge is, can we comprehend it as well? Yeah. yeah and that's that, where I'm interested. Yeah, no, that really is it. I, I mean, um, people are probably bored by now if you're hearing me say it, but the hard parts, there's really not many parts of programming anymore that don't have to do with humans. I think there's a few things left in distributed systems work that are about physics more than yeah. they are about people. But not most of what we do. Most of what we do is, you know, I find myself very commonly writing a piece of code and looking at it and going, what is somebody going to, essentially, what is somebody going to feel when they look at this? Yeah. Right? Yeah, Which is yeah. a really weird question to be asking when you hold it up against our conceptualization of programming as this extremely logical thing. It, it's like, what is the emotional reaction to these letters I just typed going to be? Essentially, yeah, but, but it's but there always is an emotional reaction. It's yep. like, ew, this code's ugly. Right. It's like, like ugly. What does that mean? Exactly. Yeah. No, totally. <laughs> and you know, I was I mentioned this to somebody else the other day. Yeah, I think it was. It was yeah, it was one of our other guests actually. We recorded with Ben Ornstein, and uh, we said um, something along the lines of, "One, as a programmer, especially I think as a closure programmer, should really, really pull up short whenever you find yourself objecting to something on aesthetic grounds, because you're working in a lisp." that most people reflexively reject on aesthetic grounds. Right. And I think it's fair to argue that you already disagree with them if you like closure. Yeah. <laughs> so. No, I mean, so, but so aesthetics is weird because it's, it's, it's more about familiarity than it is about 
about anything else, right? It's like, oh, this is alien and weird to me, and therefore it's ugly. Um, and I mean, I mean, if you look at like human history, right? Like wars have been fought over that, right? So yeah, there's so, that I mean, psychological phenomenon known as mere exposure. I'm not, I'm not familiar with the term. So mere exposure refer, and I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or whatever psychologist, I guess. But anyway, cognitive scientist, whatever it is. Yeah. But it, so the, the the rough idea is that just being exposed to something is enough to make you like it. So personally, I do not personally care for country music, right? That's not my thing. Right. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be clear that I don't object to other people liking it, um, but I don't like it. But the, the mere exposure goes something like this. If I, say, work somewhere where there was country music on all the time in the background, I would, I would come to like it more just because of exposure to it. Yeah, it's like immersion therapy or whatever they call mm-hmm. it, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, so I, I personally find closure aesthetically beautiful, mainly because I can never remember any of the damn operators <laughs> and here. precedents, yeah. and like, like it's one of these things where where I see I see infix syntax, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh my god, which thing is going where? Yeah, exactly. And especially especially if you're you don't have a type system to like catch your precedence error. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I it's I, I, yeah, I, I worked in C like languages for 15, 20 years before I came to closure, and I. Even still, could never remember the uh, order of uh, order of operations. Yeah, I, I was joking with that Haskell programmer. I said that like I will use Haskell when you can write a program to read Haskell code aloud to me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? It's uh, like I, I need you to verbalize it because you know I read my code aloud. I, I have coworkers they're like, uh, Brandon, you're mumbling under your breath again. And I'm like, all right, so thread the first argument to the like. I need I need something. That's like auditory. Um, that's one. Of, it's one of my favorite features of Mathematica. Is you can ask for the full form of an expression, and then it actually gives you like printed English characters, right? Like ASCII. It's like, huh. oh, okay, that's plus. I call that plus. So what is this thing? Oh, that's called something else. Hmm. Whereas like enclosure, it's like we all know that the little dash arrow is thread first. But like that's a community thing, or that's a documentation thing. Like I, I wish that English spelling for every operator was like a language requirement because I want to be able to pronounce things. Yes, absolutely. My kids are bilingual and we we run up against this all the time. Yeah, anyway, that's a whole other story, but Yeah. Well, cool. So, I I think I think this is an excellent place. I'll just say pause since like, we do want to have you back at some point, but uh, probably a lengthy pause. Um <laughs> uh, and and to give you the opportunity to share with our audience advice unless what you told us earlier was your advice. I think it was great advice, but if you have other stuff you'd like to uh well, to close us down with, that'd be cool to hear. I figured I'd, I'd share some advice from the from whatever topic you were talking about, but I guess I've already done that. So let me come up with some other advice. Uh, go to Ikea and get yourself one of these motorized sit-stand desks. They are awesome. I'm sitting at one right now. Oh, my God. I love this thing. I've had it for two weeks now, and it's, like, life-changing. And it was it was like I, I, I didn't buy a sit-stand desk because they were so pricey before, but Ikea makes one for, like, four or 500 bucks now. You know, it's 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 particle board, but the, it's pretty sturdy, and the legs are are weigh a ton, and the motorized motion, being able to switch between sitting and standing during my workday is totally life changing. So that's some really practical advice. Right when you're done with this talk, the listener, you're, the, when the listeners are done, hop in your car, go to IKEA, pick one up. It's All right. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I have one too, and so I, I can't uh, I can't disagree with your advice. I think that's excellent. <laughs> well, I will I will say thank you so much, Brandon, for coming on the show. I've I, I've always had interesting conversations with you. This was yeah, no uh, well, I appreciate that. This was certainly no exception. 
Um, we will have you back on. You've got a lot of cool things going on. It'd be great if nothing else, and I suspect there would be something else, to hear if you've had an opportunity to take and, and more fully realize. Does this thing we've been talking about for like an hour have a name? Uh, so not really. Uh, so <laughs> it has a it has a, a code name that I give it uh, that I given it. So I, my original thought was like it's going to be Git down to the expression, mm-hmm. and so Git is like a slang for. Um, like a like an ignorant, stupid person or something. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for like antonyms. I came up with a uh, mensch, which I guess is like Yiddish or something for yeah. like like a like a good guy, like yeah. Yeah. like oh that guy's a mensch. He's he's you know he's a good dude, friendly. So that's that's the name of the directory is mensch. Cool. <laughs> All right. Well, then we yeah. will we will have you back on. And if nothing else, it would be great to hear how how mensch has come along, possibly. I don't know. I like the name Mensch, but maybe you'll have a, a different. Well, the, name the problem is that the three-letter abbreviation for the command line tool will be Men, uh, which is which is no good. Okay. Well, <laughs> all right. You'll have to you'll have to learn more Yiddish, and maybe you can come up with something uh, something yes, suitably exactly. awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, it's certainly been great to hear about your idea and to talk to you. It's been it's been great. Uh, love the fact that you were able to take time today and come on. And and I know you're starting something new, so we. We wish you um, an enormous amount of uh, luck and happiness with that, and uh, we'll be much. keeping our eye on Twitter to, to find out more about that when you're able to uh, to let us know. So uh, thanks one more time for, yeah, for being on. Thank you for, thank you for having me. Absolutely, and we'll thank our listeners. This has been the CogaCast. You have been listening to the Cognacast. The Cognacast is a production of Cognatech Inc., whom you can find on the web at cognatech.com and on Twitter at Cognatech. You can subscribe to the Cognacast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art at our home on the web, cognatech.com slash podcast. Our guest today was Brandon Bloom on Twitter at Brandon Bloom, B-R-A-N-D-O-N-B-L-O-O-M. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognacast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.